Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Institute for International Development podcast. I'm Lucia Robinson. Today, Professor Rosaline Duffy joins me to discuss her research paper entitled Interventionism for the Non-Human World, Intensifying Militarised Conservation. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. Nice to uh, speak with you. You too. First question I have is, can you explain what militarised conservation is and where is it taking place? Well, we're at the beginning of a kind of a four-year project around this and militarised conservation is where we see the sort of practices and logics of uh, military tactics and military approaches being deployed in conservation. We're not trying to claim that this is a brand new phenomenon because there's been a long history of interlinkages between conservation and the military, so very similar skills are often needed by rangers in remote environments. Um, But what we think we see is over the last three or four years with a kind of a a concern about rises in poaching of elephants and rhinos and tigers, that the idea that a kind of a military approach would be more appropriate to try and save those endangered species. And what we're looking at is what kind of conservation does that drive and what kinds of problems and challenges does it throw up. So where have these forceful approaches come from and what have been the steps that have led to this war of biodiversity? Yeah, it's quite a difficult question actually to answer that one. It's not entirely clear where it's come from. I think certainly in the recent calls for more forceful approaches, it's come from a sense of urgency that unless there's a an immediate and direct intervention to save these species, which would be based around a military approach, then they may go extinct forever. So there's that sense of crisis and of urgency amongst the conservation NGOs. But I also think that there are two or three different kinds of dynamics going on. And one is that there are several sort of, well, very large groups of people who've been demobilised from interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq who are looking around for new sources of employment and the conservation sector has been somewhere where we've seen those people starting to be employed either uh, by existing organisations or they have set up their own companies and offer anti-poaching initiatives and so with them they bring the sort of experience that they've had in counterinsurgency the experience they've had in big international interventions and also the attitudes and approaches that they learned during those uh, large-scale international interventions that they're bringing them into the conservation sector. And part of that is also a a more general acceptance of the potential role of private military companies, both in military interventions and in conservation sectors. So protecting endangered species, the roles of rangers and anti-poaching units are no longer confined to state agencies, that they can be carried out and provided by private military companies as well that specialise in this. But again, I, you know, I do want to reiterate, it does build on a long-term historical practice. Um, so if we look back at Kenya during the sort of pre-independence period, we can see that the military and rangers were both used in counterinsurgency operations against those rebelling against the colonial regime in Kenya. So we see conservation and military linked together. And also the South African Defence Force during the apartheid era were also involved with the uh, conservation activities as well. So there is quite a long-term sort of history of it, but I think we're seeing a kind of a, an intensification of it and, and a, a deepening and a widening of these sorts of practices. 
Can you expand upon the general politics that surrounds militarised conservation in particular? Is there any racial politics involved? Certainly, I think there really is. And I think the the sort of racial politics of a war for biodiversity or militarised conservation is one of those kind of overlooked areas. And it harks back to a very early time in colonisation, particularly of sub-Saharan Africa, where colonial regimes criminalised African hunting methods, the use of traps and snares, in order to make hunting by European colonists and sport hunters acceptable and legal. And of course, sport hunting is also a form of accumulation, so it was something that profit could be made from, whereas African forms of hunting were often more closely linked into the subsistence economy. So there is a racial politics that we still see present in debates Whether it's conscious or unconscious, I think sometimes it is conscious amongst conservationists that there's this kind of casting of poachers are primarily poor, they're primarily black, they're primarily African, or in the case of the South Asia, they're primarily Indian, whereas sport hunters and conservationists are white. Um, And so there is a racial politics there which is played out. We can also see it in um, South Africa. There's been some really great research done on green militarisation in South Africa and about the sort of outpouring of a very kind of violent discourse by the white community in South Africa, which discursively produces the black community in South Africa and in Mozambique as criminals uh, and as poachers. So I think uh, the racial politics in conservation is is an overlooked area and that's something that we really want to kind of delve into in the project. That leads me to ask, who is the civilian and who is the combatant? And who defines these roles? Yeah, again, I think I think that's a really good question because, again, if we look at these kinds of stereotypes as that poachers are African and conservationists are European or white settler African communities, again, that kind of plays into a, a false distinction. So if we look at the sort of rises in rhino poaching in South Africa, it's quite clear it's got to the stage where the veterinary associations in South Africa have had to put out public statements that their vets should not collude in poaching of rhinos, and um, particularly on private lands, but also in national parks. And again, you know, that disrupts the idea of there are particular types of community, particular types of individual who are engaged in poaching and particular types of individual engaged in conservation. So if we look at the role of vets in colluding with there's certainly one quite well-known and well-documented case colluding with um, white-owned private rhino sanctuaries in order to traffic rhino horn out. That disrupts who's the combatant, who's the civilian, who's the poacher, who's the conservationist. So I think we really need to complicate those categories and not kind of assume that one group is involved in one activity and another is involved exclusively in another activity. Is the battle to save endangered species by such um, violent means ever justifiable? In my view, not. I'm not sure that um, everybody would agree with me. There are academics and also certainly within the NGO community who think it's perfectly justifiable to use forceful and violent means. Otherwise, I wouldn't be having this discussion with you, I guess. They think that the use of force is, I suppose, originally it might have been thought of as a kind of a last resort born out of a sense of urgency. What I see increasingly among some conservation organisations anyway is that it's being presented as a desirable model. That It's not just a last resort model, it's that we must move immediately to that and it's the only desirable option to save critically endangered species. In my own view, I don't think so. I think we've got to find better ways um, of engaging in conservation. We can find better ways um, of saving endangered species. 
And part of that might be a very different kind of radical model of conservation. So, for instance, one that doesn't artificially separate human communities and wildlife communities into separate protected areas and separate areas where people are kind of squeezed um, into uh, smaller and smaller areas for human habitation. Is it ever argued that the saving of endangered species in this way is a cover-up for targeted violence against humans? I have heard that argument. I think within the conservation community, I think the zeal and the drive to save endangered species is really what's kind of driving it, rather than any other kinds of, of agendas. However, I think that conservation and conservationists can very easily play into other kinds of dynamics. So, for instance, if a state agency or a government has a particular dislike for, let's say, nomadic communities or pastoralist communities that practice transhumanist pastoralism and they move around and there's an antipathy by the government towards them, conservationists can end up kind of colluding in an agenda that's actually about state stability and state stabilisation rather than about necessarily conserving endangered species. So I think while that might not be the underlying drive from the conservationist's point of view, it is something that is a danger in conservation, that it can play into those other kinds of agendas. So previously I did some research and wrote about the way that some conservation activities in Kenya, for instance, were actually driving forward and extending a war on terror in a particular area because the argument was that stabilising the area and preventing poaching of elephants would also help to combat al-Shabaab, which actually was a very blunt argument which didn't work that well. It made a nice story and it was one that several donors were quite interested in, but actually what it did was it had the potential to turn local communities into the kind of front line of a global war on terror and put them at significant risk. That's one of the questions I actually want to ask you. So do the military values of these interventionist wars expand outside the realms of conservation into the everyday lives of everyday people, for example, local warfare? Yes, um, so I think it can go into at least two different directions. It's both that conservation can um, play into those logics and perhaps turn local communities who may be persuaded that they're engaging in conservation activity but actually they're pushing forward the logics of a much wider dynamic around war on terror but I think also those logics work back in the other direction as well so it's not just that conservation pushes forward that agenda it's that that agenda pushes forward conservation as well it's a two-way street really I think we can see it flowing in lots of different directions. Can you give us a deeper understanding of the levels of violence? What would you say the ratio is of poacher to ranger deaths? Oh, now, that is a good question because we don't know. There has been an attempt to collate the figures for ranger deaths, particularly by the Thin Green Line Foundation. And at one point they had a kind of banner headline figure of 1,000 rangers had been killed over the previous decade while carrying out their duties protecting wildlife. But that was likely to be a significant underestimate, actually, because they didn't have figures for several countries around the world and ones where uh, forceful forms of conservation were being carried out. So there have been attempts to collate those sorts of figures on ranger deaths. To my knowledge, although I'd love to be proved wrong, there's been no attempt to count up the deaths of those defined as poachers, either in country or across countries. So we actually don't know how many people are being killed. We also don't know how many people might be beaten. So 
we actually don't have those figures. And actually for me, that also maps onto the kinds of reporting that we had around global interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan. We got lots of figures about combatant deaths on the side of the big international intervention forces. But it was very difficult to get figures for those killed on the ground, Iraqis, Afghans. We don't know those numbers. And again, I think in sort of conservation as well, that can also play into the racial politics of conservation. So the poacher deaths are defined as those that don't matter. These are allowable deaths, they're permissible deaths, because these people are presented as criminals and worthy of essentially execution. Whereas the rangers can be presented as heroes, and so their deaths are worthy of reporting and of recording and of collating statistics. And for me, actually, I think it's important probably to collect proper accurate figures of deaths on both sides so that we actually know the nature of the conflict that rangers might be engaged in and the nature of the conflict that those defined as poachers or illegal hunters are also engaged in. Because we need to know, is this approach working? You know, if it, if it simply shows that the number of ranger deaths and the number of poacher deaths are escalating each year, then that tells us this approach isn't working. So for me, it's actually it's really important to collect those numbers, but we're simply not doing it. So who would be doing that? Would that be the role of the academics or the NGOs? Well, on one level, it should be the responsibility of the relevant states. Um, so the Indian government, for instance, should be collecting statistics on the numbers of poachers killed by rangers and also by the number of rangers who are killed in carrying out their duties as well. So the state would be the first place I would go to for statistics. And then, of course, there are also sort of several international organisations or NGOs that could be involved in collecting it. You know, if we can fairly accurately count the number of elephant carcasses found across sub-Saharan Africa and identify the cause of death, we should be able to collect the accurate data on the number of people killed and the nature of their death, whether they're defined as rangers or as poachers. Now, the argument I'm often given is, is that these contacts happen in remote areas, that we will never really know how many people get killed, that we might get reports on the number of rangers killed, but shootouts might happen in a very remote area and bodies may never be found but for me that's quite a weak argument. So on the whole would you say militarised conservation is more harm than good? In my view most definitely Um, I can see why it's attractive I can see why some NGOs and some governments have felt that they've been pushed to a point that they have to respond to an urgent crisis in this way it's something that shows an immediate activity It shows that a state or an NGO or a private company can go in and really make a difference and put a kind of protective ring, if you like, around wildlife. I can see all those arguments and, you know, in many ways they are very persuasive. But for me, I feel in the longer term what it does is it will alienate the communities on which conservation relies. So in order to make protected areas function, you need to have a much wider community around it that's supportive of it and if conservation agencies are engaged in militarised forms of conservation they risk alienating those communities. So if we take somewhere like the Democratic Republic of Congo, heavily armed rangers engaged in violent activities against local communities may just be regarded as simply another militia in the area. So we have to look at the context in which these things happen and I think as well that militarised forms of conservation really have the capacity to sweep away 
all the gains that might have been made by more participatory and community-oriented forms of conservation. And it also prevents us from thinking about new radical models of conservation that might work more effectively. It's also very costly. So there's an increasing number of private companies that produce the sorts of surveillance technologies like drones, for instance, that are now becoming quite fashionable within conservation. But, you know, they're expensive to run and, you know, several park managers have complained to me anyway that they're being asked to buy drones or they're being given external donor funding to buy drones or develop intelligence networks and put lots of money into these sort of high-tech solutions, but their staff are not paid on time or not paid at all, or their staff don't have basic adequate equipment. So when they go on very long patrols into remote areas, they don't have adequate shelter, they don't have adequate clothing, they don't have adequate boots. And it would seem to me that actually looking after a the rangers rather better, paying them properly, equipping them properly might be a better use of resources than this as well. Exactly how urgent is the conservation crisis? Um, again, I think it's a, it's, it's a good question. I kind of, I laugh a bit because there's the creation of the sense of urgency and there's no doubt about it that, you know, extinct is extinct and some of these animals are really important animals for ecosystems they're important uh, iconic species that everybody you know well not everybody but lots of people love elephants and they grow up loving elephants and they see them on cartoons um, and they have furry toys of them so I think it is urgent but I don't think this is the right response I think something does need to be done to save critically endangered species but we can think of better ways of doing it than a militarized form of conservation I suppose what we want to do in the wider sort of biosec project is look at the ways that there have been an integration of security and conservation logics and not just criticise them. Of course, we set out for a critical interrogation of these developments, but also where the kind of spaces for more positive engagement might be. So, for instance, we've seen the use of drones by activists, for instance, to expose wrongdoings by states and by private companies and to show that their lands are being encroached on, for instance, or that companies are engaged in activities that harm the environment or harm wildlife, and they've been able to provide data on illegal logging in forests. So it's not all negative, negative, negative. We want to look at those kind of positive stories and and areas where there might be some kind of useful, constructive engagement. Um, But I think, you know, the sense of urgency in conservation at the moment and the sense of crisis means that short-term decisions might get made to save endangered species but actually those decisions are going to be counterproductive in the longer run. So I would say yes there is a crisis, yes it is urgent but this isn't the right way to respond to it. Is it just environmental activists who are keeping these private companies accountable? No, I mean I think Different conservation organisations have different ideas, so there are arguments between organisations. One of the interesting things for me in the course of the research as well is to discover that actually there are individuals or groups of individuals within some of the bigger conservation organisations who are criticising this approach and trying to persuade their wider organisation not to follow it. So activists are important, 
Um, there were arguments between conservation organisations and there were also robust arguments within conservation organisations about these approaches. And then of course there's academics who can also assist in kind of holding organisations or states to account on this by doing thorough research and finding out what's actually happening on the ground, what kind of logics is this driving, what problems is this militarised approach creating. So there's a whole wide range of people and organisations that can try to keep organisations and states and protected areas accountable. But it's difficult because if you look at media coverage or press coverage of this issue, everyone likes a story about saving an elephant. And so you read stories only about positive activities of conservationists. It's very difficult to get any interest in a story out there about the sort of negative aspects of that because it's deemed that these animals are so important that human communities and human interests around them are much less important. So it is difficult to get that critical story out there, but there are lots of different organisations and individuals who are engaged in that, I think. There is a crossover of veterans becoming rangers. Does this tend to be because ex-personnel want to continue their role to protect? Or have you found that the ranger role is a means to exert and revive military strength, both physically and in terms of maintaining a personal military identity? Mm -hmm. I actually think it's both. So I think um, for some of the ex-Afghanistan and Iraq veterans, it's about being able to re-engage in some form of combat because they found it difficult to reintegrate into everyday life once they've been demobilised. It's actually something that we really want to look into more in the project because it's a relatively new phenomenon and we want to understand what's the drive, what's the motivation and then also what are the effects of this. I imagine, I, I, we don't know yet because this is part of the work we're still to do, that some of it will be about kind of re-engaging with that kind of military persona. But I think for some of the veterans there is this kind of sense that they want to help endangered species, they can see that in some places the state might not have capacity to protect wildlife and so they're kind of stepping in to fill that void. So I think there's a mix of different things going on and some of it will be about kind of hard economics, it will be about here is a new career and a new income stream for me if I set up a private military company and we've become much more used to the use of private military companies over the last 20 years so that they've proliferated and they're present in all sorts of different sectors protecting oil installations protecting headquarters of major corporations and also in wildlife conservation as well so we have the veterans but we also now there are at least two examples that i can think of of UN peacekeeping operations also being instructed to engage in wildlife conservation because of the idea that ivory poaching in particular, uh, but poaching more widely, might contribute to instability in a region where the UN has a peacekeeping operation. So one of those is MINUSMA in Mali and the other one is MONUSCO in DRC where the United Nations peacekeeping forces themselves are also working with rangers or providing anti-poaching services as well. So it's actually it's bigger than the veterans. So there are lots of different new actors um, arriving in conservation at the moment. And we really want to understand as part of the Biosec project, why is this happening and what's the kind of motivating force behind it. We're really at the beginning of a four-year project that's about trying to learn more about the motivations behind 
the greater development or integration of biodiversity conservation with security and what kinds of challenges that produces. And we do want to critically engage with it, but we also want to ensure that we're kind of looking at areas where there might be constructive engagement between the two sectors. Thank you very much. Thank you.